Hi again, everyone. Welcome to a very special episode of Dead Men Talk. And uh, I've had a blast with this season. I, I, I think I've got probably the most eclectic mix of people come on. And today's is no different. Um, it's someone who has been able to marry two of my great loves together. If, if anyone who's followed any of my work, watched any of these shows, you'll know that music is such a big part um, of my life. It's been a great source of insp inspiration for my own writing. I got someone on today who, you know, writes about musicians, and I, I don't think you can get much better than this. He's written some books about some of the biggest names, I would say, some of the biggest bands you would have heard of in the music industry. Uh, one in particular, which we'll get into, which is a personal interest of mine. I welcome to the show Richard Houghton. How are you, sir? I'm very well, Chris. Thank you. Good, good, good. Yeah, I'm, I'm so I'm I, this again. I've said this a few episodes this season, really. This I, I'm loving at the moment, just discovering people um, whose work kind of lands on my newsfeed just randomly. Um, yours is a little bit different because the, the the book that brought me to you, which we will go over, I'll flash it up. There we go. Let me your ears. Okay, the the, the fans, um, the fan history of Jethro Tull. For obvious reasons, people who know me know I'm, I am a very big Jethro Tull fan. Um, I knew about this book anyway which was fantastic. And then it was only kind of through chance that I found you, you through a, a mutual Facebook group and was able to get in touch with you. So this this isn't as random as some of the others may have been. You know, this is actually being able to get you on is, is, is fantastic for me because, like I say, I already had an interest in something you've done. Um, <laughs> one thing I'm, I'm, I'd like to kind of touch on to begin with, just to kind of lay the groundwork for people who may not, you know, know your work yet, is the books that you do, they're from a slightly different angle. You, uh, you're not necessarily telling the story of the artist necessarily. You're telling it through the fans. Which, um, tell us a little bit about that firstly and sort of, you know, how I suppose that appealed to you or came about in particular. Okay, well, it's, I'm a big Rolling Stones fan. I'm 62 and I went to see the Stones in 2014 in Stockholm with my then 18-year-old son. Right. And the Stones had just clocked up 50 years, I think 52 years at the time. Mm. And I was thinking about the audience, given that I was approaching, well, I was middle-aged myself and a lot of people were older than me. And I got to thinking that there were a lot of people who'd been following the Stones for 50 years, had seen them from the outset back in 1962. Being a big Stones fan, I also collect books about the Rolling Stones and I've got over 200 different wow. titles, wow. which is by no means the full set. You know, many people have got many, many more titles than me. Yeah. But I was conscious that having collected 200 different books about the Stones, nobody told the story of the band from the perspective of the fans. Wow. They're either from the inside circle, such as Keith Richards, autobiography, Ronnie Wood's autobiography, Bill Wyman's autobiography, or they are from the inner circle in some capacity, a journalist has worked with them, or they're often, and this is true of lots of other bands too, I guess, they're rehashes of other books. So you right. pick up a, a brand new book and you start reading it and you think, I've read this story before. Right, yeah, right. They're recycling old press sure. cuttings or they're recycling old concert reviews. But I was thinking then 
Well, there's all these people out there who saw the Stones back in the early 60s when they had Brian Jones in the lineup. Mm-hmm. It's in the days before YouTube, before smartphones, because now you go to a gig, everybody gets their phone out. Yeah. Yeah. And by the time you get home, it's all over YouTube. Yeah. Pretty much watch the whole concert mm-hmm. filmed by however many individuals were there. <laughs> That didn't exist in the 60s. And those memories that people made of concerts back then Mm. were either written down in their diary when they got home or they were told to their family or friends. Mm. Otherwise, they didn't exist. And I just thought it'd be really nice to try and capture some of those memories of the Stones 50 years before and try and tell their story in a different way. So it might be how a record impacted on somebody's life or it might be how going to see the Stones or often it's about how it was marked a significant moment in that person's life, whether it was a team played at the wedding or whether it was on the first date with somebody, whatever it might be. So trying to mix a bit of the personal with the musical history. I love that. And that resonates, all of, all, of, all of that resonates with me. You know, the first time I've seen a band or your favourite gigs and something that really means something, there's, there's artists and there's, there's albums out there which I associate with pivotal parts of my life, um, which I still go back to, you know, and they, they, I think they'll always be there for sentimental value, apart from the fact that they're great as well. Um, was there anything, so, so we'll come back to that, but for yourself, was there any, anything like that before you got to the stage of wanting to write about it, were there were there sort of seminal records or moments and that that you'd witnessed that that sort of stay with you from your kind of your own experience? Well, the very first concert I went to was the Beatles at Hammersmith Odeon, the Beatles wow. Christmas Show, nineteen sixty four. Okay. Whether I was four years old and have no memory of it, my, I went with my parents basically. Right. My mum was a big pop music fan although my dad was not not quite so bothered mm. first musical memory i've really got is seeing t-rex doing hot love on top of the pops oh, okay. in the spring of 1970 mm-hmm. hot love was number one for six weeks right. so you couldn't escape it nice. and as it happens i was in hospital at the time because i had chronic asthma as a child right. and i remember thursday nights in the hospital ward was a big deal because we all wanted to watch Top of the Pops and the nurses had a devil of a job sort of lining yeah. up the chairs and getting us all to, in position because everybody wanted prime position to go to watch the telly. Of course. But it was a big communal event and I, I just have a clear memory of that. That's good. Again, because my dad wasn't really a pop music fan, we didn't particularly have pop radio on in the house yeah. before. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But after that, I've got, you know, I remember buying my first record, which was Resurrection Shuffle by Ashton Gardner and Dyke. Okay, not one I'm familiar with, but okay. Well, uh, it's quite, yeah, quite an unusual choice, I suppose, but um, got to number one, I think. Okay. Anyway, I, I remember trading that at school for something else when I was about 15. And the person who swapped it with me was horrified when they listened to it because <laughs> it being my first ever single, it was scratched to death. <laughs> Uh, we've all got that I'd, 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 I'd actually you know I played it 24-7 when I first got it and there was hardly anything left that's what they're made for though isn't it I, I, I do wonder with some people it's great you know when you get to a certain age and you want to collect the old stuff and keep it pristine but back at the time you know that's that's exactly what they're there for so they're there to be enjoyed aren't they so yeah yeah I mean and I've got other records I've got a copy of Come Taste the Band by Deep Purple 
And my best friend bought the album, took it back to the local record shop because he said it had a scratch on it. A couple of days later, I went to the record shop and bought what I believe is the very same copy of that album. Mine has a scratch on it. But, you know, I can't listen to the album now without that click on the uh, opening track. If I hear it without the click, it doesn't sound right. Oh, it's, no, that's for me, it's part of the music. Yeah, yeah, that's what you've, what you've grown up with. That's brilliant. That's brilliant. So sort of your, you started with the, so the Rolling Stones, the book about the Rolling Stones, that was your first first one that you, you, you did um, yes. and got published. Just take us through the process then, because as I, I'm a writer myself of, of fiction, so I know sitting down mapping out an idea and you know you just kind of run with it when you're writing something based on other people's experiences just just give us a sense of what that's like to put together you know how do you compile the stories firstly and then how do you choose you know order which ones make it that kind of thing well the stones book so like i say it was um 2014 and 50 years before, in 1964, the Stones were still touring quite heavily mm. in, in the UK and playing places like Watford, Gaumont, or, you know, venues of that sort of size. They were moving yeah. out of the clubs and dance halls and into theatres. Mm-hmm. And they did their first US tour that, that year as well. So it just happened to coincide with the 50th anniversary of them playing certain okay. towns what I did was write to local newspapers and say, 50 years ago this month, the Rolling Stones were in town. Would you be interested in uh, a feature on, on this? And some newspaper editors said, yeah, write us a piece and we'll publish it. And some said, well, we'll if you send us a letter, we'll, we'll put it in our letters column and put people right. in touch with you that way. So I did a shout out you know, to just about every local newspaper in, in Britain because the Stones played just about everywhere yeah. between 62 and 66. And then people contacted me and they either wrote to me and sent me their memories or they mm-hmm. said, here's my telephone number, you know, please give me a ring, I'd be happy to chat. Cool. Sometimes them writing was better because you've actually got their words and they've, yeah. they've, just, they've not had to think about it. And sometimes it was me interviewing them. And of course, there is a temptation sometimes to ask leading questions yeah. because you know where you want the interview to go. Yeah, got you. Be careful not to hmm. do too much of asking the, and what was Mick Jagger wearing? Find <laughs> yeah. a question every time because otherwise yeah. you end up with the same story. Everybody remembers yeah. that Mick was wearing a white shirt or was wearing That's a. That's about it. Yeah. Yeah. So that's how I did it. And then in terms of, the order well the book's a chronology mm-hmm. so it starts in 1962 with them playing at the marquee it ends on the 5th of july 1969 which was the hyde park concert they played mm-hmm. two days after brian jones had died okay. and that seemed like a good point to end the book because mick yeah. taylor had been recruited to replace brian and they went off on a u.s tour that autumn and it was a whole new era of the stones okay so the brian jones era if you like yeah I felt was bookended by their debut in in the marquee and then ending in Hyde Park with with Brian having died just a couple of days before. And and like you say, it represents, yeah, without going, trying to sum up their entire story, which probably would take multiple volumes, you know, focusing on one 
one era, you're going to have a lot of people that probably either are interested in finding out more if they weren't around then or ones that wanted to relive those memories that they may have had, you know, by picking that up. So, yeah. Um, yeah, so, so then from, from there on, how did it lead to more you? Because you've done, uh, looking at sort of the number that you've done, you've, you've done a, a fair shake, um, a, a loads of different, you know, um, bands and that. What, what what was your kind of direction from the Rolling Stones one? Did you know other ones that you wanted to do or were you then sort of approached to do them eventually? Well, I think what was interesting about the Stones and that the era is it, it was obviously way before Ticketmaster mm. and having to buy your concert ticket weeks or months in advance. Mm. It, it was before pop radio. You know, Radio yeah. 1 didn't start until 1967. There was very little pop music actually played on the BBC. There were no um, commercial radio stations. So teenagers went to dances. They went to dance halls and they would just go every Tuesday night mm. to their local club. And they might see the Stones, but they wouldn't necessarily know in advance who was playing. It might be the Stones, it might be the Who, it might be the Kinks. Yeah, yeah. Although the Beatles were, you know, booked in advance for the bands that followed immediately after, it was still a case of going out and playing to get your music heard. Yeah. So some of the people I talked to had seen everybody. And when I asked them about the Stones, they said, well, let me tell you about the Beatles, because I saw them too. Okay. So I started out collecting material about the Rolling Stones. And at the end of it, I had 25% of the material towards a <laughs> Beatles book. How cool is that? And... Given, you know, there's always that Beatles or Stones sort of dynamic about yeah. who did you support as a, a teenager in the 60s. It just seemed the obvious step to do that, you know, the biggest band in the world. Yeah. And I've got memories of, again, of seeing the Beatles before they were famous. There's a, there's a great story in the Beatles book about a guy who'd hired them uh, for a, a village hall up in, in Scotland. And it was a young farmer's do. And the young farmers weren't interested in the pre-fame Beatles. They were interested in getting absolutely smashed yeah, and trying yeah. to pick up the local girls. Right. And there were beer bottles being thrown around and all the rest of it. And this guy who promoted the concert retreated upstairs to escape the mayhem because he realised he couldn't control the unruly masses. <laughs> but he got to hear one of the very first versions of She Loves You because oh, they played wow. it that night. They'd only just recorded it. And, you know, he was privileged and sober enough to remember hearing that's, it and that's the kind of thing you want isn't it really i mean any of these memories are great but if you've got one or two of those almost like historic moments that people yeah. didn't know were historic at the time and then you can look back on that's that's brilliant yeah, yeah. that's fantastic cool so um so yeah so trying to tackle one then i mean you, what a way to start with, with your first two trying to tackle two of the biggest ones um if i if i was to say out of everyone that you've done, this is probably a really harsh question. Do you have, do you have one that's dearest to you? You know, either because you um, you were a fan yourself, you know, it meant it meant a lot to have the book out there, or one that was more fun to do. You know, if you had to pick one out of your collection that you've done. Well, the third one I did was was then a book on the Who. Okay. And, and again, it was seemed like a natural step. One of the other biggest bands of the sixties, mm. and I, the Who, if it was possible, were, were even more relentless in their gigging than the Stones were right. because they were playing six and sometimes seven nights a week, sometimes two shows in the same day. 
and you know bands would often rock up at their managers offices in the morning to be told off to set a phone call from such and such mm. somebody's cancelled can you get up to warrington or you're going to be playing in newcastle tonight so they didn't know beforehand where they were going to be playing okay there'd be little or no pre-promotion mm. or they'd turn up and the the audience were actually expecting the yardbirds or something and the, okay. the, the death before them and even though the who's concert history has been extensively chronicled i actually managed to find three concerts that had never been um, recorded before wow. so there was one in stevenage where i'd got a date for it and a woman wrote in said oh yes i saw him on such and such a date in stevenage and i said oh yeah no I, i've got details of that i think it's the locarno ballroom in stevenage but you've got the date wrong right and she said, no, no, I haven't. It's written in my diary. And she sent me a scan of her diary. Oh, wow. They'd actually played the same venue two weeks before, ah. but it had never been published mm-hmm. before. And I, and I found a couple of other concerts like that That's where cool. that you know I was able to verify from the information people gave me that The Who had played a show that wasn't in other books about The Who. Wow. I also found a show that three different people could all remember going to at Wem Town Hall in Shropshire right. but none of them could agree on the date <laughs> and when I wrote to Wem Town Hall to ask they said well we can't help you because our records were destroyed in a fire oh, seven no. years ago so that the who played Wem Town Hall doesn't seem to be in dispute but exactly when it was date. even down to the year okay. is uh, a mystery yet to be solved there you go. So at least you've got that far. I mean, you know, obviously further than than, than some records did, or any records yeah. did by the time you got there. You, you, you feel a sense of achievement. You've got to with something like that when you you know you kind of unknowingly or not added a little bit more to their history because there's got to be plenty of people out there who do what you do. Maybe not, you know, but you know for the reasons you do it, but because they're interested. Um, who who would be thankful for you know being uh, being able to fill those gaps almost that's cool yeah i mean sometimes the bands themselves don't remember no. they're reliant on their road manager or somebody in the crew who will have kept diaries who will have kept a log of all the journeys or somebody mm-hmm. in in the management team but as we get older you know fewer and fewer of those people are around yeah and sometimes yeah. records get thrown away because people don't recognize the value of that old exercise book in the bottom of a shoebox. Yeah. That might've actually included lots of historic information that was of value, value to us. To someone. Yeah. So it's really just trying to capture that as soon as this kind of information comes available, like you're doing, putting it in a form, which touch wood, you know, will always be around in some form Mm -hmm. once it's out there. And, uh, I'll bring you on while we've got a bit of time then I will bring you bring you on to this one in particular like I say because I have a personal interest in it and this was the one that really got my attention and I mean this this is the first of your books that I've seen and if I mean if this is anything to go by I don't know how much this sort of translates but for people to I mean it is a beautiful beautiful bit of work thank you you know, it's so rich in information. What I obviously I haven't sat down and gone through it cover to cover yet because I've not had quite the time since it's arrived until I speak to you. But such, you know, I mean, it looks like it's one that you can pick up. 
you know, you can delve into, you know, there, there's the, the stories are digestible and there's just to give you a sense of how much is in here, really, if you just flip through and just see how many names pop out of people that have contributed to it, just, just sort of give us a, a rundown then of how this one in particular came about and sort of any, any memories and that, that you've got about putting the uh, Let Me Your Ears together. Okay, so I have got my own publishing company called Spendwood Books. So I've published several titles through that. But I also write books for a company called This Day Music Books. Mm-hmm. And they published a Jethro Tull book. So they published a couple of my other books. I did a book on Simple Minds. I did one on Orchestral Maneuvers in the Dark. Mm-hmm. And Jethro Tull. Ian's management were, were interested in the idea because it was against a different angle mm. to the, the usual way of doing it. And if somebody contributes a story to the book, there's a chance that they'll buy the book. Yeah. There's a chance they might buy several copies of the books. They'll yeah. want to Absolutely. give them as gifts to their family. Yeah. So it, the, in some practical terms, if you can pull together 500 stories, then you might sell 300 books. Yeah off the bat yeah. just to people who've got a story in the book because their name's yeah. recorded for posterity and you know and they want to see their name in print absolutely and so that was how how it came about um with some of the books i've done it's purely fan stories yeah but with the jeffro toll book um james ian's son who's also his manager actually reached out to lots of people and they agreed to contribute memories. So you've got several former members of Jethro Toll who've put stories in there. And yeah, I was just saying you've got some guys, you know, from from big name, yeah, big names in the music business as well who have mm-hmm. um, who have contributed to this. I mean, you know, Jethro Toll. I only discovered them. I'm quite late to the party, really. I mean, it's if I say it's 10 years that I've been a fan of theirs, I mean, that's obviously only a snippet of their history. And, I mean, this book, does it cover, what sort of time span does it cover throughout it? Is it sort of the entire history or, or a bit like you've done before? But yeah, no, it's, I mean, it goes back to the very beginning. I mean, Ian was kind enough to do an interview with me. And so I got him to talk a little bit about his childhood and his first musical memories, you know, growing up in Blackpool and the roots of the band and the move down to London, you know, the involvement in the rock and roll circus. He had a little story about Brian Jones and the Rolling Stones, how, because Jethro Tull famously played at the Rolling Stones Rock and Roll Circus, which was a, a televised show, which the Stones taped, I think with the intention of being able to create a load of promo videos to save them having to go and perform live on TV shows. But Mick Jagger was not satisfied with the Stones' final performance, so the the tapes gathered dust for about 20 years. But Jethro Tull appeared as one of the supporting acts, and Tony Iommi of Black Sabbath was very briefly in Jethro Tull, so he appears in that video. So Ian talked a little bit about how Tony got that gig I they needed a guitarist for the tv show yeah. they were miming anyway so tony agreed to do it because he didn't have to learn any and any what, guitar parts what could have been that's one of their aspects of their history i'm most fascinated with you know what could have been could have been don't know would they have been 
what what direction could they have gone with Tony Iommi? But yeah, sorry, carry on. <laughs> so, well, I, what I think is really interesting about that is Tony, because I've read his autobiography, mm. said that those two weeks in Jethro Tull were really instructional for him because Ian rehearsed the band quite rigorously yeah. every day. You know, they would start at nine o'clock in the morning and they would rehearse properly. And when he went back to Black Sabbath, having decided he wanted, he was missing his mates, yeah. one of the things he decided was they couldn't lie in bed all day and then just show up for gigs and hope it had all worked. They'd got to actually start yeah. practicing properly. Yeah. And he took that work ethic away from, from the two weeks he spent with Jethro. So there you go. There you go. And, and the rest is history, as they say. Yes. So um, just, I, I, I've got to ask then, because obviously, you know, I think it, it, he's Ian Anson is on my list of I, I've I've got sort of three or four guys who have really inspired me in my writing. You know where, where I said at the beginning that music and my writing. If I would sit in the early days when I was trying to write stuff and I would have music on the background, I'd take all kinds of inspiration from what I was hearing. There's two guys who lyrically have inspired me the most. You know, Christopher is one of them, and Ian Anderson because I think between them, they're the stories in their songs are so rich and just so individual that I, you know, it just kind of, I would sit and I would listen to them. I think the guy's a genius. What was it like then sort of talking to Ian Anderson? I've got to ask a kind of fanboy question there. Well, you say talking to Ian Anderson, that implies it was a two-way conversation. Okay. <laughs> I had 10 questions written down and an hour and 10 minutes into the interview, we only got through two of them because and I don't mean this in at all a critical way, no. but he does not stop. He <laughs> tells a story and he tells a very good story. His recall is excellent. Yeah. He's very self-deprecating. So, you know, he'll, he'll ex explain what he's talking about. He'll make a joke about himself. He'll move on. And you're, you're just listening to him. is fascinating. I mean, he could be on TV just telling stories. It would Absolutely. be fantastic. You know, so, and I think that's, just reflects what you're saying about his lyrics really you know he, he not only does he write a good story he, he's a fantastic narrator as well he is yeah and performer wise i i you know i find him mesmerizing with watching him perform you know he's a different person than if you sit down you hear him talk you know he's he's, he's a real character but, yeah. one of the things we talked about because there was a little bit of interaction was um when toll first went to america and led zeppelin were breaking through in the states mm. and this this is covered in the book a little bit how ian you know stood in the audience and and watched zep go through their paces and picked up a few things about performance and stage presence that he then took to jethro toll's show and and the theatricality of what told did particularly in the early years is something that a lot of fans comment on in the book mm. it wasn't yeah. just a couple of smoke bombs some flashing lights and the music no. you know and, and different stage shows like the unwrapped tour mm. where you did different things and people were still talking about those that stagecraft 35 40 years yeah. later yeah you know, how many have they inspired you know of, of the acts that have been around sort of 20 30 years now you know i think they were they've they've crossed over almost like a couple of generations i think in in when they've been around and the one thing i absolutely love about jethro toll is how 
every album I've heard, I mean, it sounds different. They've almost evolved. They're one of those bands that have evolved with the time really, really well. Um, I will admit it's probably a controversial thing, but the, the, the period I prefer is kind of around um, sort of A, Stormwatcher, and up to, you know, Christopher Nave and, and um, Catfish Rising. I quite like the latest stuff. Um, starting off as a bit of a metal fan, so you know, I was I was in sort of the harder rock sense, but his his sound changed. I, there's some songs where I, I liken him to, um, yeah, Dire Straits. They had a very very similar sound, but then you go back to their early stuff, it's completely different. But I love that because there's such a depth in what they've done. You could go back to any album, any era of theirs, and have something different. And, um, a few bands like that, you know. I, I think yeah, like. I mean, I was also lucky enough to talk to Mick Abrahams, okay. who, I mean, he's, he's had a stroke and he's, he's really not been very well. He's in, I think he's in a retirement home now, but he was okay. very kind enough to sort of grant me an interview, which we did wow. over Zoom. And he was saying that the split after the first album was very much because he wanted to go or carry on in the sort of blues direction that first album was. Right. Ian had a, a clear and different vision for the group, and you couldn't you couldn't fit the two of them together, which no. is why Mick went on to form Bloodwind Pig. And Ian, obviously, is the main songwriter, mm. wanted to go in a different direction. Ian also told a very amusing story about how Chris Wright of Chrysalis told Ian that Mick was the main man, and he, Ian should stay in the background which right. as ian said wasn't going to happen basically no. no you see you try and catch that it's like catching lightning in the bottle i would imagine trying yes. to uh, trying to harness what he what he would do on stage you can't replicate that yeah so, oh, that's brilliant no that's and you know i cannot wait to delve into this book more you know it's going to be one of those i think i'll just keep going back to because there's, there's definitely so much stuff i could take from that and um you know you are the library of stuff that you've and just mentioned some of the bands, if you will, just, you know, just take a moment and just kind of give everyone a flavor of the, the guys, aside from those that you've mentioned already, the Beatles and the Stones, you know, who else have you written about? Well, I've done Pink Floyd. I've done Jimi Hendrix. Uh, I've got a book coming out in a couple of weeks, which is again about the Rolling Stones, but it's the Rolling Stones 1972 North American tour. Okay. Which is, um, kind of notorious because it's captured in a couple of films and involved a lot of backstage hijinks involving drugs and groupies and uh, okay. film which i won't use the name of because it may not be uh, suitable for family broadcast no that's cool but it's, but it's a film that the stones commissioned which mick jagger commissioned but which when he saw the rough cut of it said could never be broadcast and so the director was only ever allowed to show it I think four times a year and had to be present when it was shown. So effectively it right. never had a proper commercial release, but you can find it on YouTube. Right. Okay. Bones realized that if that was seen by the authorities in the U S they'd never tour there again, because they'd never get visas to visit. <laughs> oh, um, I've done a book on cream. Oh yeah. Cool. cool. And you know, and that was, kind of because a bit like Hendrix you know it was one to fill in those gaps in the 60s mm. so I've done most of the major acts of the 60s it's like a who's who at the minute I will say yeah absolutely I mean I'd love to do I'd love to do the Yardbirds 
and I'd love to do three as well because I think that and then Peter Green era Fleetwood Mac but then you, you can go on and on there's always okay, there's somebody else, else you can do I was going to ask hoping... that actually yeah have you got a wish list of ones that you would you would want to still tick off yeah well next year you know I've I've got the material for a book about the faces okay. with Rod Stewart yeah and I'm hoping to do a book about Slade as well because Slade is kind of my era That's... when I was when I was a kid, you know, Slade were all over the charts. Yeah. So one, one of the very first records after that Ashton Gardner and Dyke single that I remember buying was My Friend Stand by Slade. Okay. In fact, I didn't buy it. I think you could cut out vouchers off the back of a packet of hula hoops or something <laughs> and post eight of those off to KP and oh, you got a single sent through the post. Oh, still had some of those days when I was younger. Yeah, I remember the joy of that and then waiting for it to land. It's, oh, brilliant. That's fantastic. And I've also just had a book published about Fairport Convention. I was going to ask about that, yeah. Is, yeah. Which is authorised by the band. So, And that came about because of the Jethro Toll book. So I interviewed okay. Peggy, Dave Pegg, about his time in Jethro Toll. Mm. So he knew what the construct of the book was, that it was a story from eyewitness accounts. Yeah. And just as a throwaway comment, I said to him, if you'd be interested in doing a book about Fairport in the same way, just give me a shout. And he came straight back to me and said, I'd love you to do a book on Fairport. Oh, that. And that came out last week. So there you go, fresh off the hot off the press, as they say. Yeah, yeah. That's brilliant. That's brilliant. And I, I think there's definitely after this, there, there's definitely enough to send people away um, to discover and sample of yours you know i mean any music fan worth their salt will find probably somebody that you've written about that they want to find out more like i say there's stories that you know I've, I've sat down i've read autobiographies and biographies loads of them but these ones particularly do appeal to me now because it's just that other dimension of i know what i've got from certain bands you know like i say all these these pivotal points in my life that are represented by a certain song an album whatever and other people out there obviously have their own and the fact that we can access those in works like this is, is truly fantastic. So, yeah. Well, I think that you've, you've put your finger on it there, really, because if you were to give me a story, for example, about the faces, if you'd seen them, mm. but I'm gathering you're just a little bit no. too young. Yeah, you're not my... Not my but name. if you did, you would be telling me a little bit about yourself as well. Mm. And your story then would be a little bit about the faces, but a bit about yourself and how you got into them. And I think that's that's why the book chimes with people, because somebody else would read your story and think, well, that's interesting, because I remember that song on the radio too, or yeah. I was at that concert, or I saw that tour. Yeah. And that's part of the appeal. It's The Jethro Toll book is 500 different mini life stories, in a way, yeah. all, all fitted together with Jethro Toll running through the middle of it. And it's, fan it's fantastic, a fantastic idea. I mean, I, I say to some people before, I've got a, a I st my books, I started off writing horror. And when I say for one of my earliest works, it gets amongst my readers, gets the most sort of recognition, I suppose, and um, notoriety. Um, I, I'm asked where I come up with the character. And it's actually that one story was, was it was two Christopher songs that I mashed together. And, you know, and I wrote a horror story. And it's not really these association people on paper would would put together but it's it's the effect those songs had on me on what then happened in my mind and what came out on the paper so it's 
everyone's got those yeah you know traveling through certain points of their life through the music and mm-hmm. yeah absolutely brilliant so finally before i let you go then just let everyone know after we bigged everybody we told everyone about you know how uh, that they need to go out and find you and your books where can they find you and buy your books so well most of them are on amazon but uh you can also find them or details about them on spenwoodbooks.com and if people think well i like the books but i don't really want to pay postage and neither do I want to put hands uh, money into the hands of Amazon. You can always go into your local bookshop and order the books there. Cool. cool. Let's do it the old-fashioned way. Much, much prefer yeah. that. Absolutely. Richard, this has been absolute delight having you on. Thank you so, so much for your time. This has been... I really, really appreciate you coming on and, uh, and talking more. And again, I, I can probably sit and I can pick your brain. Um for, for days on end but i'm gonna i'm gonna let the books speak for themselves for now and i'll uh, i'll let everyone else do the same so yeah all the best with everything that you've got coming out and um and th- that you've got in the works and everyone get out there and, and you know pick up one two however many of richard's books to uh see if any of your memories are in there so <laughs> thank you richard no, thank you thank you chris <laughs>